Hello and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guest today is Dr. John DeGarmo. Dr. DeGarmo is the founder of the Foster Care Institute and Never Too Late, which is a residential program for young men aging out of foster care in Monticello, Georgia. Well, hello, John. Welcome to our podcast today. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. And thank you for the opportunity to be on. You're very welcome. Why don't we go ahead and dive in? If you could please tell us a little bit about yourself and how you're connected with the foster care system. Sure. Thanks for asking. I'm Dr. John DeGarmo, the founder and director of the Foster Care Institute. I also opened up the uh, residential home Never Too Late, a home for young men and youth in foster care. I really dedicated my entire life to all things foster care, though I never really intended to do that. I never really intended to be a part of the foster care system. It wasn't until after the, the death of my first child so many years ago that led me to become a foster parent because I wanted to help more children. That led to me having over 60 plus kids come to my home, get my doctorate in it, written several books. And now I travel the nation and globe trying to bring awareness to foster care and trying to make the system better for all involved. Wow. <laughs> that is a lot in a very short explanation. <laughs> so you are a speaker, you're a foster parent, you run a residential program, and you run an institute all focused on foster care. That's correct. That's fantastic. So what got you interested in foster care? Because I know you got your degree in that area, right? That's right. Our first child died of a condition called anencephaly or as some pronounce it, anencephaly. It's a condition where the brain or skull never truly form. And after that happened, I was, I kind of spiraled into a dark place in my life. I was full of anger, uh, full of denial. And it wasn't until years later that my wife was from Australia. Uh, we, we moved back to America from Australia. And I was teaching in a, a rural high school setting in the middle of Georgia, very rural, uh, an area full of uh, lots of poverty and lots of apathy, generational poverty. And I noticed a lot of kids coming through my classroom who had issues of attendance and issues of behavior and issues of academics. And I kept wondering, what is the correlation here? Why are there so many children in this small community like this in my classroom? I started meeting a lot of their birth parents. And then I realized, aha, it starts in the home. So I went to my wife and said, hey, you know, we lost our first child. How can we help more kids? And that led to foster parenting. Wow. Between the time that you made that decision, how long was it before you had your first foster child come into your home? Ooh, uh, maybe six months. You got to go through some, uh, you know, there's, there's training, there's background checks, there's uh, home inspections and the like. And we went through all that. And then pretty soon after that, 1030 at night, one night, a phone call came and four-year-old girl and her six-month-old sister were placed in her home. And I realized in the first 20 minutes that, oh, I'm not prepared for this. Even though you went through training, it's always a bit of a shock, I'm sure. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you can get all the training in the world, but real life is different. Let's go back around to your residential program. You have a program called Never Too Late in Georgia. Could you tell us what you do there, uh, the youth that you help? It's young men, I believe, if I remember correctly. And how is it that you help them? Sure, sure. So my wife and I had, at one point, 11 kids in her own house at the same time. And uh, both of us worked full time. And we would come home and we would throw all of ourselves into these children. And uh, I was traveling more and more on the road, speaking at events, and my wife suffering from uh, Lyme disease. 
So we thought, you know what? We can't keep doing nine, 10, 11 kids in the house. We're suffering. We're all suffering. It's um, a little exhausting, if you will. So we thought, how can we take it up to another level? How can we help even more kids? So after a lot of consideration and talk and prayer, we opened up the home. And it is a home. It's a TLP home, Transitional Living Program home. It's for young men who are about to transition out of the foster care system. And we have we have uh, boys between the ages of 16 to 21 placed in that home. And we help them with a number of skills. We help them with, first of all, they have to get a high school diploma or a GED of the equivalent. They, uh, they have to learn important living skills and social skills. They have to learn how to raise their own veggies and cook. They have uh, chickens and animals for, and rabbits for animal therapy. They have musical instruments for music therapy. They have art lessons for art therapy. They work in the community and jobs. And most importantly, we try to give them a sense of home. If one were to walk into the home never too late, they would. I think they would say this, wow, this is like a home. This is not an orphanage, if you will, or, or a group home. This is a home. We wanted to give it a home feeling because we really believe that, that every child deserves unconditional love and a sense of family. Right. I agree. They really do. And how many youth do you serve in at any one time? Are you, are you helping in that home? We can serve up to 16. Up to 16? It's a big home. It is a big home. Yes. yes. <laughs> well, as I said earlier, we had 11 kids in our house at the same time. So 16 is not too much more. <laughs> now, did you start in your own house or was it? No, 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 no we didn't. We took a while to just cut out some facilities, but it certainly felt like we had one in our home with 11 kids. At one point, we had, 11, at one point we had seven in diapers. So it felt like we had our own um, daycare. Yes. And, and <laughs> well, yes, we were going everywhere. You know, uh, my wife would text me about three o'clock in the afternoon and say, okay, you're going here. I'm going here. And then this child's got to go here. This child's got to go there. We'll meet in the middle of home. And then we would get home and crash into bed about 11 o'clock every night. Mm. I worked at Milton Hershey School for a while, and I know that the house parents with the elementary students there, one of the questions that we would ask them, you know, jokingly, but not really, is do you have a lot of energy? Oh, right. <laughs> So for this home, Never Too Late, did you build your own life skills curriculum program for them or are you using somebody else's? You know, I've had the uh, wonderful pleasure and opportunity to work with many residential and therapeutical homes across the nation. So I've seen the best and I've seen the worst of each one. So I've been able to take what I've seen across the nation and, uh, you know, use the best of each and we've created our own. Well, that leads me to a follow-up question. If you had to choose, say, two or three of the best elements in a residential program, what would those be? We really are excited that we're able to provide a sense of home for these children, a sense of family and community. We live in such a small community, about 3,000 people, and our community has really embraced Never Too Late. We have to turn away donations and contributions because so many people in our community and outside of our community, but in our region of the state, want to support Never Too Late in some fashion. So we have people coming over from music and art and gardening to teach these uh, young men skills. We have people all calling up all the time saying, hey, we want to we want to give these boys a place of employment. We have restaurants who are calling up all the time saying, hey, we want to deliver food for you once a week or once a month. That wonderful sense community has been great for these kids because it shows them that they are important, that people do care for them, that they do matter. Um, that's been one thing we like. Also, our life skills program, I'm, I'm very pleased with that. 
as you know, so many youth age out of foster care and they're not equipped with the living skills, the social skills, they're not equipped with that high school diploma. They're not equipped with the skills in general. So as a result, so many of them end up in a tragic fashion. They, they 55% drop out of school, 65% will end up homeless, 75% will end up incarcerated. And then for so many, the system just starts over again. I really uh, like our, our skills that we teach these boys as well. Absolutely. So that sense of community that has been built around your home, did you do anything in particular? Because I know I've heard of communities fighting against residential homes coming in. So how did you get your community to support you the way that they are? Or was it just organic? Some organic and a lot of legwork, a lot of awareness. Fortunately, the uh, the community has watched my wife and I through the, the previous years care for these children in foster care in our in our community. I mean, they knew that there was a foster family named DeGarmo in this small town. You know, they were seeing us on TV uh, on a, a national basis. They were seeing us on newspapers. They would see us in the grocery stores and the schools. So they came to know us. And then when we decided to make this decision to, to open up the home, we met with a lot of civic leaders and community leaders. And then I started visiting faith-based groups and churches, not only in the community, but the surrounding areas of the state, letting them know about the need for such a home. My message has always been not everybody can be a foster parent, but everybody can help in some way. So I would let them know this is how you can help these children in your own community, in your own backyards, your own neighborhoods, by coming together and partnering with us at Never Too Late. So we've really tried to to show people that you're partnering with us to change the world for these children. Wow, that's that's so great that they took you up on that offer. You know, it is, it is. And, and I've worked with those those residential homes across country where they've not had that community support. I think there may have been two or three people initially who said, you know, not in my neighborhood, but then we pointed out some statistics to them and and they have come on board. Mm -hmm. That's great. And the young men that you work with, I would imagine if you're rural, that you might not have a lot of foster youth in that age group. Oh no, we're getting from across, we're getting across the state. We have men from across the state of Georgia. That's what I thought that might be the case. I know in Pennsylvania, I've looked into it recently that the older ages in the more rural communities, the numbers, they're really just, there are a lot of kids in foster care, but when they get to the age of aging out, it seems like they're just maybe one or two or three in the more rural counties in, in a year's time. That's right. Fortunately, we've had, uh, you know, we've had agencies call us up from across the state and say, hey, we've heard about you. We like what you're doing. Can we please, uh, you know, work with you? That's great. Now, the folks who work for you, I would imagine you have staff there. What kind of credentials are you looking for in the people who work for Never Too Late? First and foremost, a heart and desire to work with children who are in crisis, to work with youth who are in need, youth who are uh, troubled and challenged. So, you know, you have to have a heart for that, first and foremost. You know, you've got to be very patient, very understanding, very calm, a, a good listener, uh, somebody who wants to, who's able to sit down and, and, and listen to these children and not pass judgment upon them. You know, you can, you can look at the, the backgrounds of, you know, education and, and all that, but in the long run, we're looking at where is your heart in this? Do you want to make a difference for youth in crisis? And are you willing to share of yourself? Our employees are often sharing of themselves or sharing their own personal stories. They're sharing their hobbies or sharing their interests. And most importantly, they're sharing their hearts with these kids. 
And do you provide any trauma-informed curriculum or training with your staff? We sure do. We sure do. I laugh at that because I have a number. During this time of, of shelter in place, many foster care agencies across the country have been calling me up at the foster care institute saying, hey, can you provide us training for trauma-informed parenting? I just did one earlier this week. I've got a number set up in the next couple of weeks and months. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Not only is it important to become aware of the trauma these children face, but how to respond to that as well. That's just as important. Oh, exactly. Exactly. And I would think that a key part of a program like yours, and you use the term therapy, is to help the young people work through the emotions and also to identify their triggers. What are their emotional triggers and how can you build healthy responses to those triggers? Absolutely, absolutely, and that's why we have that's why we have such uh, avenues as I mentioned earlier, music therapy. We have uh, the boys have guitars, or they have drums, or harmonicas, and we have a music night on Wednesday nights because music can be very, very healing. I mentioned earlier that we have rabbits. Just a simple, simple act of petting a rabbit can be very therapeutical, very healing. Um, they can express themselves through art. We have a bike riding program where we take the boys riding on bikes. Are they able to exercise um, and learn new skills? But, you know, it's another form of therapy, if you will. We're look, we look at all different avenues. We want to heal the whole person. One of the challenges, I think, for many, of course, not all young people in foster care, is to really have a sense of hope for the future. What is it that you do with your young people to help give them hope, to help them see it? Well, I'm all about um, the power of a positive word. Words of encouragement are, are very important and never too late. You know, I think, I think when they have the opportunity to work, when they're getting employment, they see a sense of future for them when we're working with them in school. I was just stopped by there just the other day, and I saw some of the staff members sitting side by side with the boys in school. You know, that, that GED, that high school diploma, that's a sense of accomplishment and a sense of future. We have opportunities for them to think about careers. In fact, that's one of the things we stress, whether it's military, whether it's technical school, whether it's college, some other type of avenue of, of future career. We explore those as well. And we have people coming in to talk to those boys about that. So we look at a whole bunch of different opportunities in that regard. And for the young people who graduate from high school versus getting a GED, are there differences in the opportunities or is it basically the same regardless? I think a high school diploma does open up a couple different doors that a GED might not. Whatever it might be, they're both essential in today's world. You know, in 2020 and beyond, it is essential to have a high school diploma or GED because most people won't even look at you for a possible career. So we really do stress education. Again, I came from a high school background, teaching background. So I recognize the importance. My wife also is a doctor of nutrition, and we stress that in our own home, and we stress that in school at, at, at Never Too Late as well. And do you get a sense of the percentage of foster youth who graduate from high school, get a GED, or never get either? Do you, do you know what the breakdown is? I don't. I do know that 55% of youth who do age out of the system will drop out of school. I do know that 6% will go to college and only 2% will graduate with a four-year degree. Mm -hmm. Those are pretty troubling statistics. Yes, they are, definitely. And I would imagine that the young people who go through your home never too late have a much better chance of beating the odds. Absolutely, absolutely. 
again, one more time, we really stress education. Fortunately, we are directly across from our school, our, our uh, county's board of education. And as, as I've worked with the school system for so many years in some capacity or the other, and as my wife has been heavily invested in it, and we've had 60 plus kids come through this small school system, the school system and the school board has become very involved with Never Too Late as well, because we have stressed, hey, we are helping not only the children, we're helping their birth parents, we're helping to lower the rates of homelessness and crime, we're helping to raise the level of education and graduation rates. So our school system has come on board as well. Wow, that's good. I'm really glad to hear that. Let me move on. You've mentioned that you do speaking engagements. What is it that you speak on? Oh, goodness. Human trafficking, child sex trafficking in America uh, and globally, child abuse, foster care in general. Uh, I work with a number of foster care agencies on how to equip their foster parents with the resources and support that they need because foster parenting is tough. Let me tell you, it is tough. It's rewarding, but it's tough. So we, I, I work with them in that regard. Uh, I work with lots of faith-based organizations on how they can create their own outreach mission, if you will, to help the foster care community in their own area where they live. I talk about education as well. So, yeah, and, and of course, parenting. So a lot of things. I love it. I love it. And what are you doing now in this current situation that we are all in? Are you doing virtual engagements? I'm doing virtual engagements. I'm doing uh, training programs for foster care agencies, for foster parents who are stuck at home. And I'm helping uh, agencies create strong recruitment programs. I've created a virtual online orientation program that foster care agencies are using for orientation for new foster parents. You know, in fact, it might be that I'm busier than ever. And if there's somebody listening who's like, wow, we'd really love to have Dr. John DeGarmo come and speak to our group, or at least virtually do so, how can they get in touch with you? Is that through the Foster Care Institute? Yes, they go online and search for Foster Care Institute, or search my name, Dr. John DeGarmo. My name will come up there. Of course, I'm on social media as well. Okay, and just get in touch with you through those avenues. Great. Now, speaking of COVID-19 and the crisis that we're in. I know and I see article after article come across my newsfeed about how foster youth are struggling right now because it's difficult at any time when a young person has to leave the system at 18 or 21, depending on where they are and uh, what programs they've, they've signed up for. But it's just a real challenge for them to be successful on their own without a family support. What are the unique challenges of the current situation that we're in for these young people? Well, it's a great question. I appreciate you asking. The children right now and youth are not getting the professional therapy or counseling sessions that they need and they require and they, and they get on a normal basis. These children are not having uh, visitations in person with their birth family or biological family members, which is so important for issues of attachment and trust and family relationships and reintegration. They are not getting the special services and support they need in schools. And some children are not getting the drug counseling sessions that they need. As a result, their anxiety levels are bursting, going through the roof. They're trying to hang in there by the by the grips of their fingernails because, again, they're not getting all these services that they need. They're stuck at home, and the double-edged sword is foster parents are really struggling with this as well. They're not equipped to be a professional therapist or counselor. They're not equipped to be a homeschool teacher for kids who are behind academically at least 18 months. Uh, they're not equipped to handle visitations in their own home by a virtual conference. So everybody is 
screaming out, we need help right now. And that's why so many foster care agencies have contacted me and come to me and said, hey, Dr. John, we need your help. How can we help our foster parents? How can we help these kids? And what do you do for them in your role and your expertise? How is it that you can assist? Well, I'm providing lots of online training webinars for agencies. Uh, we have over 50 hours of online training webinars at home, training webinars foster parents can access so they can get their CEUs and licensing hours at home. They can get the resources and information they need. So if a child arrives in their home at 1030 at night with with goodness forbid, lice or anger management issues or reactive attachment disorder or whatever it might be, eating disorders, whatever it might be, foster parents can hop on there and get the information they need. I'm partnering with a lot of agencies and creating special events with them. I've got one coming up in one state where I'm helping foster parents with a session called Marriage and Foster Parenting, Making It Work, because foster parent marriage is tough enough as it is, but when you add children in your home who are suffering from a great deal of trauma and anxiety, that makes it even harder. And then when you're all stuck in the same place during shelter in place, oh my goodness, that can be tough. So we're doing a lot of different things right now. Okay. And how is Georgia handling aging out during this crisis? Have they made any adjustments in the aging out time frame? I know that there have been a couple of states that have said that the young people do not have to age out right now, but how is Georgia handling this? Georgia's like many other states who have said, you know, you can hang in there until you're 21 years of age. In fact, we at Never Too Late, we do have some boys who are 20 and 19, 20 and we even have one who is close to 21 as well. And what about the young people who are about 21 right now? You know, it's a tough situation. Every state right now is, as I've mentioned this to so many people right now, COVID-19 and the coronavirus have thrown all of our normal rules and day-to-day policies out the window. And everybody is scrambling right now to come up with new policies to, to address this. And we are on a learning curve where we're learning not only day by day, but hour by hour. So one day the policy might be this, and then some information comes in, and another another day, the next day, the uh, policy's been changed. So Georgia's like everybody else in that it's they're, they're, they're continuing to look at the data, continuing to look at the statistics, and they're trying to come up with the best policy during this time of, of tremendous uncertainty and tremendous anxiety. Mm-hmm. I know through the interviews that I've had so far that there are a lot of organizations out there that are going above and beyond their original mission to provide support for young people aging out of care right now, those who have to, just because whether it's 18 or 21. I would imagine that connecting the young people with those kinds of resources, I know they're not everywhere, but if there are any around, that could be very helpful. Absolutely. And that's something we try to do at Never Too Late. You know, again, that sense of community, and, and we try to connect them to a number of opportunities for them. So when they eventually do leave Never Too Late, whenever that might be, first of all, they know they have something to, um, to go onward to. And secondly, they know they always have a sense of family to come back to. Yes. Now, do you help them find a place to live when they leave your program? Yes, we do. We do. Because I know housing is just so critical. Well, you'd mentioned foster parenting right now in the midst of this. What would you say in general, you know, COVID-19 aside, what would you say are the challenges that the foster parents face with older youth? And what would you recommend to people who are considering foster parenting in, in that age group? You know, I think back to a time pretty recent where we had three high school seniors in our home. Two of them were homeless. 
and they were placed in her home and all three were on the three very different paths in their high school and and post high school that we stay in contact with all three of them now so they've moved on but i should say this all three of them were a joy to have in the home now to be sure there are challenges when you have youth in care in your home because and, and let's be honest nobody wants to be in foster care no child wants to be in the foster care system it is an ugly label an ugly label thrust upon them and when they reach middle school or high school um you know words hurt there's an old saying sticks and stones may break my bones but names will never hurt me it's a lie and when some kids find out that others are in the foster care system, they label them that way. And there's a stigma upon them for that. So many of these youth want to get out of the system. They do everything to try to get out of the system, and rightfully so. For some, the system may have failed them in some way. You know, others have issues of attachment or trust. If they've been in the foster care system for a long time and they've bounced from one home to another home to another home, which is known as multiple displacement, if they have been a victim of multiple displacement, uh, the next home they go to, they're going to say, well, why is this home any different? How long will I be here before you kick me out, before you throw me to the curb? I don't know. Why should I trust you? So there are those who have those issues of trust and attachment. And again, rightfully so. It can be more challenging to break through to that child and show them that, you know what? I'm not here to hurt you. I'm here to help you. I'm here to love you. And, you know, again, it can be it can be tough and challenging. You asked earlier about the stigma of foster parents. Well, I'll tell you the stigma of foster parents is this. And I used to believe it. My, my belief, my misconception was foster parents were weird people. Well, you know, there's actually some truth to that because we have to be a little bit weird to do what we do. It's not a normal lifestyle. It's not a normal lifestyle. When you're caring for kids in your home who have issues of anxiety, you do not lead the same type of lifestyle as your friend or even family member where you can pop off at a moment's notice to go shopping or to the movies or out to dinner. You don't have that opportunity. Uh, so it's a different lifestyle, but it is such a rewarding lifestyle. Every every child that's come through my home has made me a better person in some in some way. Mm -hmm. Do you know of foster parents who strictly work with older foster youth? Oh yes, absolutely. I sure do. I sure do. What is their I say? What is their reasoning for doing so? And I'm I love and I admire people who do that. I really do. But I'm just wondering what their motivation is. You know, for some, they may have uh, struggled in the past when they were in high school and they had somebody come out and, and help them in some fashion. For some, it's giving back, a sense of giving back. I know some who were in foster care and aged out of the system themselves, and they now want to help youth before they age out as well. Um, you know, each person has their own personal reason. I know of a lovely couple who only fosters medically fragile babies who are terminally ill. And I, and I think they've had uh, over 20 babies end their life in their home. You know, they just, they were placed and just because they were so ill and they just rocked them, rocked them, rocked them and loved them in the rocking chair until they, you know, until they sadly passed on. I know some people who just foster young ladies or young men. I know some who foster just twins because they were a set of twins. You know, everybody's got their own different lifestyle for my wife and I. We took in a child as young as 27 hours old and as old as 18 years of age and everything in between. How many children have you had, uh, foster children have you had in your home in total? We've had over 60. Over 60. Wow. And have you adopted any of them? We've had the blessing of adopting three and we have faced the uh, sad reality of four failed adoptions. Mm, that just fell through for some reason? Yes. Yeah. Tragically. Well, I'm so glad that, that you found these, these children and they found you and that they could have their, their family be your family. Oh, thank you.
Well, let me move on. I, we talked about Georgia a little bit. Thinking about the foster care system in general, one of the things that I want to do with this podcast is certainly not to bash the foster care system. However, I think it's important to think about and identify areas of improvement and brainstorm solutions and changes that could make improvements. So that's what I'd like to ask you. You're very, very familiar with the foster care system. And I'm just wondering, what are a couple of opportunities for improvement that you see that could be doable? I mean, it's one thing to dream big that would require the entire system to change. <laughs> that That's very challenging to change such a big system. But what would you do or what would you suggest that the system do differently that that's within the realm of you know realism? Well, some might say it's a, a big dream, but my first suggestion would be to ease the caseload for today's caseworkers. Today's caseworkers and social workers are overworked, overwhelmed, under-resourced, underpaid. They have so many children on their plate, so to speak, their caseload. Um, it's overwhelming. You know, we're having more children placed in foster care system. Before COVID-19, it was because of the opiate epidemic. Now we're seeing a, a, a spike in child abuse uh, in our nation because of these kids are because of stay at home, shelter in place. So we're going to need even more foster parents. We need more caseworkers to ease a caseworker's challenging burden. They are overworked and stressed. And when they are overworked and when they are stressed, they can't meet the needs of the foster parents. I hear from so many foster parents that they, they say to me, Dr. John, I'm not getting the support and the resources I need from my agency. I can't do this anymore. I'm out of here. So foster parents need additional support. They need additional training, but they need to be, foster parents need to be connected to a sense of community. No one understands a foster parent like another foster parent. I have learned long ago that my own family members don't really appreciate or understand what I do. So I need to talk to somebody and surround myself with people who do truly understand the day-to-day -day unique challenges that a foster parent faces. So foster parents, they need to be connected to a sense of community. They need more training and they need more support. Uh, they might need more opportunities for respite care. And those, those things go hand in hand. Caseworkers, they need to have them more support and foster parents do as well. You know, and then finally, you can look at, you know, more support and help for those biological families that are, and birth family members that are struggling before the child is placed into care. Right. I think this foster care system has, over the years, kind of swung, the pendulum has swung from, let's take the kids out for every slightest thing all the way to let's provide the parents support so we don't have to take the kids out at all. Right. And, you know, I guess the real challenge is finding the right balance. And maybe there isn't one single right balance. There isn't. For some, a foster care, a traditional foster care home is the best environment. For some, uh, a residential home is the best environment. For some, um, remaining with the birth parents or being placed back with them reunification is the best environment. It's different for each child and for each situation. Each situation is unique, and there's not one size fits all. Unfortunately, I think the system applies a one size fits all approach. They try to. They try to. So that would be one of the suggestions is that build in that flexibility so that whoever is making the assessment hopefully is highly trained and could make a good decision for each child. That's why that pendulum swings back and forth because that one size fits all approach, people think, okay, here's the way to do it. 
and then they recognized if you know maybe a year or two or down the road oh this did not work as we expected let's try this approach and then let's try this approach instead of looking at oh my goodness okay it is different for every child let's try various approaches Yes. And so it would really be, not that this would be easy, but a matter of developing a process for assessing the situation, interviewing parents and the child, maybe people involved in that child's life besides just the parents to get a sense of what kind of support do they have in their family or extended family? Where does this young person flourish versus where do they shrink? and are scared or what have you. And, you know, among so many other factors, be able to, through this assessment, determine what the best approach would be. But I unfortunately think, now this is an impression, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that a lot of social workers and caseworkers are young people who have graduated from their MSW programs or even bachelors, I would imagine, social work programs, and they go into casework and they're placed automatically immediately to start working with these young people and making these decisions. Um, not to say that there aren't caseworkers who do stick around for a while, but that's my impression that you might not have the most experienced people making those assessments. There are those times to be sure. There are those times to be sure. I recall a, uh, an incident, great kid, great kid. And I say kid. They just graduated from college, a young, young fella in his early 20s, and he was a caseworker, and this was his first case, and it was a pretty horrific case. We had five siblings come in the home from a horrific situation, and uh, I recall going to the courthouse one day, and I watched the birth mother just tear into this young 20-something caseworker, telling the caseworker everything he was doing wrong, and I pulled the caseworker aside later on and said, all right, time for a pep talk. <laughs> Let's dust you off here. And I felt like I was tutoring him throughout the process. As I said earlier, when I became a foster parent, I realized in the first 20 minutes, I'm not prepared for this. Well, that's how it is for some of the caseworkers as well. There's education and then there's real life experiences. And I think sometimes that real life experiences teach you a whole lot more than the classroom setting does. Oh, definitely. I think in most situations, that's true. So then thinking about this problem of, you know, young, inexperienced social workers making that decision about a young, you know, child in, in foster care, putting a child in foster care, maybe what can happen is the system could develop a position, which is an assessment position. And that's all that person does. And they are the ones to go make the first visit, maybe along with a young social worker, but they have that experience. So after visit after visit after visit, they're gaining experience, being able to recognize the best solution for each child. And then that position would just always be there at the start, but then they would move on to the next one, you know, at the start and the social worker would take over. What do you think about that possibility? I think it's a great possibility. I've been advocating for that for quite a while now. The uh, sad truth is, um, or maybe the stark reality is I work with many small agencies helping them recruit new foster parents. And the person I'm working with is, you know, part of the job is recruiting new foster parents. Part of the job is training current foster parents. Part of the job is assessment. Again, they're overworked, overwhelmed, and agencies are stressed as a result. Right. And it isn't so much that the candidates aren't out there. It's a matter of funding, I would think. Right, right. Yeah. So then it's a question of making sure that your system, which is responsible for these young people, <laughs> uh, 
has enough funding to be able to make sure that you don't harm them as part of their experience, as opposed to help them. Very true. Very true. Well, you had mentioned earlier, I'm going to wrap back around there to this idea of foster parents needing community. And I agree. I think, I think foster parents need community. I think people who work with foster youth in organizations can benefit from a community. We are so segmented and siloed in this country that it's just difficult to cross those geographical and, and other types of barriers that exist. I know that Facebook does have a handful of foster parent communities. I don't know how active they are. Um, I know there's a fairly active foster care alumni community or two on Facebook. They're out there. But what would you suggest as far as a community for foster parents? Because I believe that a community that is national, you know, the more people and ideas and thoughts and support you have, the better. So I'm thinking, you know, let's break out of the state even and let's have some kind of national community. Have you ever put any thought into what that could look like? It's funny you mentioned that Monday through Friday nights, uh, I host a foster parent support time yeah. uh, for half an hour, the question and answer session on a Facebook page that I created called the Foster Parent Help and Support Group. And we have foster parents not only across the nation, but across the world. And each evening I have foster parents with questions from across the United States, Africa, Australia, Europe. And I have found this to be widely helpful for foster parents. In fact, I hear many of them say they look forward to this question and answer session each evening. Again, I call it the foster parent support time session because we're coming together to support each other. And when I try to encourage foster parents during this time is, hey, if you've gone through this yourself, if somebody asks a question to me and you've experienced it, chime in with your own solution. What did you do during this time? Let's all learn together. Along with that, there's the wonderful program, the National Foster Parent Association, the NFPA, that does great work at a national basis. Okay. You know, one thing I've learned doing the work that I do with Aging Out Institute is that the challenges of foster youth taking children into state or country care or province care, it is global. You go to, I know I can't say every country, but I'm going to assume every country has a situation where children are in a very bad situation with parents. And so there's some kind of state or government agency that takes them in and they face the same challenges at different languages, different cultures, but very, very, very similar challenges. And I would imagine in your, what you're saying with your experiences, you've heard the same thing. Sure. I had the opportunity to speak at a global foster care conference in Greece a couple of years ago. They had a representative from each country, and I was, I was uh, invited to be the representative of America, United States. Very big honor. And it was very eye-opening to me in regards to how our system in America works in relationship to other ones, other countries. I really appreciated being a part of that conference and opportunity. And you're right. You know, as long as there is mankind on this planet, there's going to be, unfortunately, harmful situations for children because we are not perfect in any fashion. And there's also the truth in what appears to be a loving, warm, safe family. When doors are closed. It could be very, very different. Yes, definitely. And I am hoping that with Aging Out Institute, that eventually the resources being accessed, some of them aren't necessarily just United States focused, 
that people outside of the United States can start utilizing them. I know we have a few people from Canada <laughs> who are, are tapping into the resources, but I'd like it to go beyond that as well. And, you know, someday maybe even have multiple languages available, but you know, that's something aging out of foster care, going out on your own um, as a young, young man or young woman, that being able to live on your own and not necessarily having the life skills that you need that I've seen in, in many, many different countries. And they're all asking the same question. How do we solve this? Yes, they absolutely are. People often ask me what nation is doing it right. And I often tell them, uh, none of them, none of them are doing it right. And it's often like in the United States, what, what state's doing it the best? Well, there's 50 different states. There's 50 different ways of doing foster care. And every agency in every state does it different as well. And so that's the same thing on a global basis. Some countries do it better than others. Some states do it better than others. But no one has it perfect because it's continuing to evolve. The opiate epidemic was something that has really strangled the United States over the past couple of years. No one saw COVID-19 coming and the, the unique challenges it would place upon the foster care system. Correct. It's something that many of my friends, it just doesn't cross the average person's mind. Oh, right. So true. And so I share some of this with my, my friends and family on Facebook. And, and some of them are, are like, oh my gosh, that's right. I, I never would have thought that there are young people leaving the foster care system right now. How, how are they doing that? So awareness is key. Right. You're right. Awareness is key. But you know, before I was a foster parent, I had those misconceptions and I believed those myths and I didn't give it really much of a, of a second thought. I think most people don't either. And that's the same thing with human trafficking. I mention this all the time. It, human trafficking and child abuse, these are issues as a society we don't want to address or discuss, talk about, because it makes us feel uncomfortable. It's not a happy ending. It's not a feel-good story. So we ignore it or pretend it does not exist. Kind of the same thing when regards to aging out. People don't really understand it. They don't talk about it. They don't address it. They don't give it a second thought. And when they hear the, re the realities of so many, they uh, try to ignore it because it does not make them feel good. Exactly. But on a flip side, I will say, and I know that we're coming up here on the end of our time, but I will add something positive from uh, uh, the last podcast that was just posted, which will have been a couple of podcasts ago by the time this one is. Dr. Johanna Greeson shared that she recently participated in a study where they analyzed new programs for young people aging out of foster care. Now that's very specific to that group, but she said in the past few years, like say in the past five, six years or so, there has been a bit of an explosion of organizations and programs being developed to support these young people. I believe that awareness is growing. Yes, I agree. Based on what I'm seeing coming across the news feed 10 years ago, not a lot of stories about young people aging out of foster care. That's that's my focus. But now, every day, there are stories about aging out of foster care, which means it's in the media more, which means that there's more awareness. Right. And like you, I beat that drum every single day. I, I'm a firm believer that awareness equals advocacy. The more people who are aware, the more advocates we have. And as I stated, stated earlier, not everybody can be a foster parent, but everybody can help in some way. So when I speak to these events and when, I, when I'm when i interviewed and when I write articles and whatever it might be, I let people know that, you know what, maybe you can't be a foster parent, but there's a child in your community right now who's going to age out and you can help them in some way. There are a number of ways you can provide support and resources and help. So, you know, I, I agree with you. 
awareness is happening. There's an awakening, if you will. A lot of faith-based organizations are recognizing the same thing. Okay, we don't have to go outside our country's borders to find a mission field, if you will, when there's a mission field in our own backyards. Right. That's a good way of putting it. Exactly. Now, John, before we go, I have two more things I want to bring up. The first is you were part of a TED Talk, correct? Yes, that's right. Where can people find that? Because I watched it and I enjoyed it tremendously. Where can they find that? On YouTube, I assume. On YouTube. You can also go to my website, the Foster Care Institute. It's on the front page. Or if you look for Dr. John DeGarmo TED Talk, I'm sure that'll come up there as well. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for watching it. Oh, well, you're very welcome. And finally, if somebody wanted to donate to your organization, either the Foster Care Institute or Never Too Late, do you accept donations? And what's the best way for them to do that? Oh, thank you. We sure do. Just simply contact me. You know, reach out via email. Reach out via, pick the phone up and give me a call. Reach out via um, social media. My my contact information is at the Foster Care Institute. Just go to the contact page. It's all there. Reach out to me via Messenger or, or social media. Number of ways in this, in this age of technology. <laughs> all right. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much. Well, I think that probably is a great way to close today's podcast Dr. John DeGarmo, thank you so much for joining me today and having a conversation about what you do and sharing your knowledge uh, and expertise in the field, which is broad. And I really appreciated the insights that you gave us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity and thank you for all that you do. Well, thank you. And you're very welcome. All right. For those who have been listening and you've listened all the way to to the end, thank you so much. We'll be having another podcast coming out in another at least two weeks at the latest. And uh, you'll find out more about another great organization or expert in the field. And uh, thank you very much for listening. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting. Any resources or research mentioned in today's podcast will be added to this episode show notes at agingoutinstitute.org forward slash AOI podcast. If you have any suggestions for people or programs that you think we should highlight in a future podcast, please send an email with your ideas to podcast at agingoutinstitute.org. Finally, if you found this podcast to be informative or useful, we would greatly appreciate it if you would consider becoming a podcast-level patron on Patreon. For only $3 a month, you can help enable AOI to continue interviewing nonprofit leaders, social workers, and former foster youth well into the future. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash aging out institute. Thank you so much for considering it and thank you for listening. Until next time.